Well, it is Maundy Thursday, and Dale referenced this here at the very beginning, but that uh, Maundy basically is, comes from the Latin word to command. We are commanded to remember something. On Thursday on, uh, of Holy Week, as Christ was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Specifically, he's referring to the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So as we gather here together, seeking to do that in remembrance of him, what, what are we actually remembering? Why these things? What is the connection between what Jesus says in, in uh, those verses in Luke and, and the other Gospels we'll be reading out of Luke tonight? What are we supposed to do with that? Why do we remember? Why is this important? Well, tonight we're going to be jumping uh, throughout the pages of Scripture. We're going to kind of dive into to five different passages seeing a big picture of where God is going, the grand storyline of the Bible, and, and connecting all those things together with this here in front of me, with what we are doing tonight. But there's basically three words I want you to remember as we're walking through these passages, and it's people, place, and presence. People, place, and presence. Specifically, God wants a people, and he wants them in a place and he wants his presence to be among them. When you look at the scriptures, that is the storyline of the Bible. That starts in the very beginning, the first two chapters, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we have God creating a people, Adam and Eve, in a place in the garden, and his presence is with them. Then you fast forward all the way to the end of the scriptures, the last two chapters of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, you get, again, a people... God's people in a place, the New Jerusalem, and God's presence is with them. People, place, and presence. But there's a problem because in chapter 3 of Genesis, things go awry. So it doesn't take very long for things to go off the rails, and people rebel. They are no longer God's people because they reject Him. They are kicked out of God's place, and then they're no longer in God's presence. So in between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation, we have the grand story of God putting all of these pieces back together again. Of God creating a people for himself, giving them a place, and then his presence being with them. But it's broken because of our sin. Sin has created a barrier between us and God. It brings both guilt, condemnation, and shame. We deserve to die and experience eternal damnation because of our rebellion against God. And so the big problem that the scriptures are dealing with is our sin, our rebellion against God. Because how can we have a people, a place, and God's presence if sin is in the picture? So tonight, as we walk through the scriptures, my goal really is for us to have a deeper understanding of exactly what's going on here. Why we can take great joy when we uh, take the Lord's Supper together. All right. Let me pray, and we will dive in. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to hear what you have to say to us tonight. And Father, may you give me particular clarity of speech, since we're going to different places tonight. May you bless us together. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you are new here, this isn't my normal practice. Usually I take one passage and I like to expound it and say, what does God have to say for us here? But tonight, because it's a special night, I I did want to say, okay, what does the Bible as a whole have to say about this, the Lord's Supper? Well, it starts ultimately in Genesis 1, but we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. What's been happening to this point is God's people, the Israelites, are living as slaves in Egypt. This is very early on in the story of God's people. They're slaves in Egypt, and God is delivering them out of Egypt. Specifically, he's going to bring ten plagues on the Egyptians, ten judgments that will force the Egyptians to let them go. When we pick up the story in chapter 12, nine plagues have already happened, and we get to the tenth plague. So, let me read to you. It'll be up here on the screen as well. Starting in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Okay, so God's people have a problem in that they are enslaved to Egypt, right? They don't have a place. They're not living in the land that God had promised Abraham, their ancestor. And his presence isn't with them either. And so we have these plagues culminating in this one, the one that we just read about, that God is using to free them from Egypt. This Passover, this first Passover, is a judgment, a bloody judgment on Egypt. God was going to kill all of the firstborn sons. Ultimately, not just of the Egyptians, of everyone in Egypt, unless that blood was on the doorposts. So I want you to see specifically that the blood here is a covering and that they were ultimately saved through a substitutionary sacrifice. They weren't saved by the fact that they were God's people. They were saved through the blood of the Lamb. Israel's salvation required a death. It required a death. You see there in verse 14 that they were expected to keep it as a memorial. Specifically, God is saying, I'm doing this great thing for you, and it's going to be so amazing that you need to remember what I've done here. You need to remember. As they remembered, it would basically make them revel in God's kindness. 
Can't you believe what God did for us? He rescued us out of slavery. He brought us into a new place. And all we had to do was sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts. God has been so kind to us. He did not take our firstborn, but he took all of the Egyptians' firstborn. So that's our first stop. That's the first Passover. God creating or rescuing a people for himself out of slavery through blood. Through blood. Now shortly after the Exodus, you get Israel coming to Mount Sinai. So picking up in Exodus chapter 19, They've been freed from Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. And they come to Sinai. And then Moses writes this. On the third new moon, so basically three months, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So at this point in the story, we see God making a covenant with Israel. And a covenant is an agreement that binds people together. And the word in Hebrew to make a covenant is not actually make, it's cut. You cut a covenant. And usually what would happen when you would cut a covenant is you would take an animal and cut the animal in half. Then you'd separate those two halves, again a very bloody affair, You'd put the animal, uh, the, the, the sides opposite one another, and then you and who, the other party that you were making a covenant with would walk through the halves of the animals. And you were basically saying, if I don't keep up my end of this covenant, then you may do to me what we have done to these animals today. So God here at Sinai is making a covenant, an agreement, a binding relationship with Israel. And this covenant includes far more than just the Passover. It includes remembering the Passover, but a whole sacrificial system of sacrificing animals was created and developed so that God's presence could be in their midst. Because God is a holy God and He can't be around sin. And so something had to be done with their sin. And so they would sacrifice lambs after lamb after lamb, animal after animal every single day, Special sacrifices at particular times of years, but sacrifices over and over and over again so that God's presence could be with them. Not only that, but this covenant included the giving of the land. He said, you are going to have this land, and if you follow this covenant, you'll stay in the land. If you don't, you won't be in the land. But you see there at the very end, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And then earlier, you shall be my treasured possession. So again, we have a people going to a place and having God's presence. God's presence was in the tent, the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple. Now the sad reality is that they don't abide by the covenant. The covenant is something that they ultimately reject. They fail. They go their own way. They sin over and over and over again. And you can just trace the history throughout of Israel throughout the scriptures and you see that they don't follow the Lord. See, this covenant that God made at Sinai doesn't address the deepest needs of their hearts. 
doesn't actually reform them. Nor does the law ever reform us. It doesn't change us. If our deepest problem is sin, then something has to be done with my sin. I can't just be given a list of rules and say, hey, don't do this, because you know what? Sin in my heart then looks at those rules and thinks, hmm, okay, how can I get around these, or how can I use these to my advantage? How can I use these good rules to do bad things? That's all of us. That's our heart. And that's what God's people did with the covenant at Sinai. Oh, look at us. We have a covenant. We're God's people. Well, fast forward 900 years. 900 years or so after the first covenant, and God kicks them out of the land. He's had enough. They are exiled. And you get this in many of the prophets, but Jeremiah specifically kind of chronicles how God is going to vomit them out of their land. But Jeremiah is not all doom and gloom, because in the middle of Jeremiah, in chapter 31, we get some hope where God says, yeah, there was a former covenant, but I'm giving you a second one. So let's turn our attention there now, kind of the third place we're looking today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Here we have God promising a new covenant. He says, that old one, it wasn't going to fix you. But I'm going to give you the covenant that you need. My law is going to be within you. You're going to have a new heart that yearns after the things that I yearn after. Not only that, but the people of God would all know him. One of the, the things about Israel was you had ethnic Israel that was all participating in the covenant in the sense that God gave them a land and was protecting them. But then within Israel, you had the true Israel, the faithful remnant, those who actually had faith in Yahweh, the Lord. And here God says in the new covenant, there's no longer going to be this broader covenant group where there'll be some people that aren't really part of my family and then this other part that really is. He says, no, in the new covenant, those who are in the family are in the family because we need a heart transplant. So there's no way to have a heart transplant and not have a new heart. He says, that's the way it's going to work in the new covenant. They shall all know me, and they will all be forgiven. And that's good news, because that's what we need. We don't need more laws. Now, does that mean that the first covenant was a mistake? By no means. It's not a mistake. Instead, the first covenant was meant to show us that we needed a better covenant. Because if God just plopped down the new covenant first, we'd be like, why can't you just give me a list of rules? I can do this on my own. So he's given us a list of rules and said, yeah, you can't. You need a new heart, a new covenant, a new agreement. So we fast forward to Jesus. We're going to be in the book of Luke. Jesus leads his ministry and he gets to the week where he's going to the cross and he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. They're reflecting back on God bringing his people out of Egypt and making a covenant with them. 
And then we get Jesus saying these words during the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is making a direct connection between what's going to happen to him on the cross and what was done at the first Passover. And he's saying, just as God's people have celebrated and remembered him rescuing them from slavery, from at this point, over 1,500 years, he says, now, the new people in the new covenant, you need to remember too how my body being broken is going to rescue you from slavery to sin. Remember this new Passover. I am the Passover lamb. John says, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Passover lamb. While we deserve to die, Jesus is paying the price for us. God is creating a new people through Christ's death. A new people. All those promises in Jeremiah 31 are here in Christ. So we have this new people Christians, the new community of God, who've been grafted into Israel. So we have a people, we have a place, specifically our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us, but that also counts as His presence, His presence, His presence is with us. I actually should say the place is still promised to us, we're obviously not in our final place, but again, we see these three things that God has created even now, a people, a place, and His presence is with us. But that's also not the end of the story. So I do want to look at the very end of the story in Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 to 3, and then 22 to 23. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here we see the final picture of what the new covenant actually creates. And when we are remembering Christ's death on the cross, we aren't just remembering what's been done, but we're looking forward to what's been promised. Being the people of God who are in His presence, the Lord will dwell with His people. The dwelling place of God is with man. There's no temple. His presence is literally right there. 
And we've been promised this place, the new Jerusalem, where we will dwell with the Lord. So we have people, place, presence. Again, all things done by the second Passover, the new Passover, the new covenant, the death of Christ on the cross. So, why, why am I harping on this a lot tonight? Why, you know, there's this a lot of passages to look through. It's very different from what I normally do. It even feels weird for me to kind of do all of this. It's because the new covenant is worth reflecting on in all its glory. Because it's what we need. It absolutely is what we need. So often my heart thinks, well, God, yeah, I just, I just need you to tell me what to do. But God says, no, I want you to have a new heart. I want you to know what I've done for you on the cross. And the Lord's Supper is supposed to drive me to my knees as I remember, oh, yes, Lord, that is what I need. That is what I need. We should have a great joy when we think about how God rescued us from sin. Just as Israel would have joy when they thought about how God rescued them from Egypt. This should be joyful as we think about how God has rescued us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. God provides us with the covenant we need, not the covenant that we deserve. Now, when we are reminded, there's two things I want us to be reminded of specifically tonight when we are taking the Lord's Supper, and all the time. This isn't just tonight, but two things I really want to highlight. One is confession, and the second is thanksgiving. We need to be confessing our sins when we come before the Lord's table. Specifically, conf well, confession just means agreement. That's what the word means, it's to agree. And I'm agreeing that my sin is indeed sin and that it deserves death. And just like the Israelites ultimately had to agree that they needed to kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorposts in order for them to receive the benefit of the Passover, we need to agree that our sin also deserved death. We need to confess our sin because the table should remind us of our sin. Not to make us weepy and, and sorrowful in the sense of woe is me, but when sin is bitter and I see the depth of my depravity, it makes the sweetness of God's love even greater. Sin must be bitter in order for the gospel to be sweet. And so it is worth taking time and reflecting on our sin and mourning over our sin because when we do then, oh, and only then, is the grace of God shown to be as glorious as it actually is. If I think my sin is small, then the grace of God will also be small. Because God's grace is going to cover my sin. And if my sin is yay big, God's grace is going to be yay big. If my sin is this big, then God's grace is this big. And if I see my sin as being something that could fill up the deepest ocean, then God's grace would be something that would fill up the deepest ocean even more. But I also want us to thank God. Because we don't stop with mourning over our sin, but we move into thanksgiving. We thank God and we praise Him for what He has done. We thank Him for His mercy and grace. So confession and thankfulness. Paul admonishes us to not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 28, he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
basically what he's getting at is the Corinthians were kind of abusing the Lord's Supper. They were just using it as a party. And he's like, look, this is something to celebrate, but it's a somber thing because God poured out his very own son's life for us. And so we don't take that lightly. And so we come to the table with sober-mindedness and earnest reflection on our own hearts. In a moment, we're going to walk through the Ten Commandments. And uh, this is just a good way to reflect and think about how have I sinned before God. And this should bring us some degree of sorrow. But I don't want us to stop in the sorrow. I want us to confess it to God. And then God says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we walk through those Ten Commandments and we're confronted with our sin, may we confess it to God and then embrace the truth that he has forgiven us. So when I read through the Ten Commandments, we're going to stop at each one. Take maybe a minute for each one. And uh, I'm going to read the command, and then I'm actually going to steal some stuff from the Heidelberg Catechism. So those of you from Reformed backgrounds, you're welcome. You'll be very familiar. But we're going to look a little bit at Heidelberg, because it actually has some great comments that help us reflect on what these commandments actually mean. Because sometimes we'll look at a command and be like, ah, I didn't do that. But some of the phrases in Heidelberg make us examine our hearts in a deep way. Say, oh yeah, you know, I actually have done that. Let's be eager to confess and embrace God's forgiveness. All right. So let's look at these together. First command. You shall have no other gods before me. Heidelberg expands on it this way that I should avoid and flee from all idolatry, learn rightly to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, with humility and patience submit to Him, expect all good things from Him only, love, fear, and glorify Him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures, rather than commit even the least thing contrary to His will. I'm going to pause. I want you to reflect to the quietness of your own heart and just How have you failed at the first commandment? And confess that to our Lord. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Heidelberg says that I should not represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Take a moment, reflect and confess. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That I, not only by cursing or perjury, but also by rash swearing, must not profane or abuse the name of God, nor by silence or connivance be partakers of these horrible sins in others. And briefly, 
that we use the holy name of God no otherwise than with fear and reverence, so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us and be glorified in all our words and works. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to walk by his Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and all in authority over me and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience and also patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder, that neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt my, not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also, that I faithfully labor, so that I may be able to relieve the needy.
ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter, nor slanderer, that I do not judge, nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it, also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Father, we confess that we have failed, that we have not loved you with our whole hearts. And Lord, even as we read these commands, we know that we've fallen short, but in many instances, we don't even know how we've fallen short. We just know that we have. So Lord, in your mercy, will you forgive us of our sins? We cry out to you, Lord, as the gracious and merciful God. Will you forgive us for our trespasses, for our lack of love, for you and of neighbor. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. May we delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.